Even though God had anointed David as king over Israel, the house of Saul refuses to give up its royal position under the leadership of Saul's son, Ishbosheth. This is the third sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from Second Samuel in chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 23 verses. The first 23 verses, Samuel chapter 2, 1 through 23. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. As God records to us the extent of the kingdom over Judah. And it came to pass, after this, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahanoim the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. And his men that were with him did David bring up every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you this kindness, because ye have done this thing. Therefore, now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Menahem, and made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. And Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, ran out from Menaam to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon and they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. They caught every one his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side so they fell down together wherefore that place was called Hilkath Hazarum which is in Gibeon. And there was a very sore battle that day and Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. And there were three sons of Zeruiah there Joab and Abishai and Asiel. And Asiel was as light of foot as a wild roe And Asiel pursued after Abner. And in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asiel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said unto him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or to thy left and lay thee hold on one of the young men and take thee his armor. But Asiel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again, 
to Asael, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Job thy brother? Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner, with the hinder end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asiel fell down and died, stood still. Jesus speaking in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. By inspiration of God, the apostle writes, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, once David's mourning over the king and his faithful brother Jonathan is ended, David looks to God for future direction. We see this in verse 1, And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Now, to some this might seem a bit cold, perhaps even heartless. The question is, does David only mourn for the duration of a poetic lamentation, as we saw in the end of chapter 1? And now he's thinking about future exploits. Because we don't read anywhere that he kept himself in sackcloth and ashes for the typical 30 days as it was for Moses when he died. Why is such a seemingly brief mourning period? And what can we learn from this, especially since we must all face a period of mourning for our loved ones? Why continuing in his exploits seemingly so quickly after Saul and Jonathan are slain? First... David understood his life's purpose. David's purpose was bigger than himself, and it was obviously bigger than his relationship with Saul and Jonathan. And so he doesn't continue to lament. He laments, he weeps, and then he gets himself up, and he understands his life's purpose is bigger than Saul. It's bigger than Jonathan. Now, while his mourning may have been brief, It was no less deeply sincere. And while it must have continued to bring him great sorrow throughout his lifetime, as he would reflect upon his love toward Jonathan and his honor for Saul, of course it would bring him sorrow throughout his lifetime here and there. He would not let that, however, deter him from his godly ordained divine mission. Secondly, David looked forward. He understood his purpose and he looked forward. He knew that life had to be lived even in the face of great sorrow and he was determined not to let that sorrow cloud his mind or derail him from building God's kingdom because he knew his purpose. In looking forward, David later writes in Psalm 30, notice what he says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Third, David had responsibilities beyond himself. He had wives, He had an entire army to lead. 
He understood that he was the future king of God's kingdom. He was in no position to allow grief to consume him to the point where he was unable to function in order to fulfill his divine and temporal obligations. In other words, he had to press forward despite his sorrow. Fourth, David's hope was in God. Not in Samuel, not in Saul, not in Jonathan, not in his wives, his children, or any of the men of his army. He had a deep connection with them, to be sure, but his hope was in God. That was his life's purpose. And too often, you know, when we lose a loved one, you know, we, we, sometimes we, we might fall apart. And while this is very natural, it is not to consume us for the remainder of our years. And so before sorrow comes calling, we must prepare to face these trials by having God as our strength. That's what got David through it. We must prepare to face tragedy because either we've gone through tragedy, tragedy is with us now, or tragedy is coming. So we must prepare for Tragedy. We must prepare to face that tragedy. We have to prepare to face death and disappointment by making God our exceeding great reward, our ever-present help in difficult situations, always praying that when that trial comes, and it will come, that we will endure. God must become the center of both our human and our eternal destiny. When we think about losing a loved one, losing a spouse, a friend, a relative, or even a child... We must realize that our Heavenly Father knows what that will do to us. And He calls us to face these trials in faith, trusting that as our Father, He will care for us and He will lead us to fulfill our divine purpose. We have a divine purpose. But here's the rub. Here's the problem with this. Too many Christians haven't the faintest idea of what God is calling them to do. Too many Christians haven't the faintest idea of what their purpose in life really is. They haven't nailed down their life's purpose simply because they haven't considered it or even prayed about it. The majority of Christians today believe that if they simply live obedient lives that they have found their life's purpose. But this is not necessarily so. So the question I ask is this. What do you wish to achieve for the kingdom of God before you depart from this life to the next? Or have you even thought about that? Have you really, really thought about what is your mission statement, kingdom word? Perhaps you're trapped in the present details of a mundane life. What body of work will you leave to Christendom? Are we called to leave some body of work for the advancement of the kingdom that will aid in the advancement of of God's honor and God's majesty and God's glory? What contributions, think about that, what contributions have you given to the kingdom? What contributions can you make to the advancement of the kingdom of God? Because everyone has a place and a purpose in the kingdom. Not everyone knows, however, what that is or where that is. Jesus knew. Jesus knew his life's purpose and goal. And he tells his disciples and us what our purpose should be as well. Notice what he says. As the Father had sent me, so send I you. Jesus had a purpose. Of course, our purpose is not to atone for any sins, but our purpose is to advance the kingdom. And that's what he was doing. He was advancing the kingdom of God. So now the question is, how do we know what our life's purpose is? Or how do we find out? 
David knew. And David was about to ask God, what is next? Now, Paul tells the church at Corinth that they ought not to be ignorant of their spiritual gifts. Or let me put it another way, that they are not to be ignorant of their purpose. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, the gifts that you have been given by God, brethren, don't be ignorant. Brethren, I would not have you be ignorant. That's what he's saying. Paul then gives a list of possibilities in verse 4 and following. Notice. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these work it, that one and the same self-Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now what is, what is Paul saying? Well, what Paul is telling the church at Corinth and all of those Corinthians who thought that having knowledge was the end of all of the Christian life is that they ought to find out where they fit in concerning the body of Christ in order to edify the body of Christ and advance the kingdom of God. So how does Paul's admonition work itself out in our modern day? Seeing that some of these gifts had a miraculous aspect to them and are no longer used of God since they were initially used to establish the veracity of the gospel in the first century. Consider these few points. Paul begins by stating that there are a variety of ministrations or a variety of ministries. Within the church body, there are areas of service that can be accomplished, that the saints can be a part of. Notice what he says. And there are differences of administrations. He is telling the church at Corinth, the body of believers located within the city of Corinth, that they can establish internal ministries for the edification of the saints, for the body of Christ, that can and will be used for all of Christendom and the advancement of the kingdom. Now, while there may be various ministrations... Paul tells them that it is all to be done for the Lord and under his authority. And that's what he means by using the phrase, but the same Lord, the same master. You're doing this for the same master. This is not for you. It's for the church at large, for the, for the master, the Lord Christ. And this prohibits, this statement, but the same Lord, prohibits any individual from marketing the gospel for selfish or individual profit. Whatever you do for the glory of God, it's not to be in order for you to individually profit thereby. You are not to, as Paul says, market the gospel. And that's what he warned the Corinthians about at the beginning of the next letter in 2 Corinthians. And it seems as if that is exactly what some had started to do. They were using the preaching of the gospel or any ministration that they were doing for monetary gain. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 2.17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Now the word that Paul uses here, the word corrupt, is the literal Greek word which means to sell at a retail price as in marketing the word of God for covetous reasons. We are not to market the word of God 
But as in sincerity, and as of God, in the sight of God, we speak honestly, not marketing the gospel for individualistic gains. And so the saint needs to find his place of service within the kingdom of God, not for himself, but for the glory of the body of Christ and the kingdom advancement. Now it doesn't matter how old or how young you are. Children will learn by the example of their parents. If the parent does not know what his or her purpose or function is within the church, in the body of Christ, and for the advancement of the kingdom, then how in the world are the children to find their purpose and function in Christ's church? Paul then, second point, Paul then says, and there are diversities of operations. In other words, there are different kinds of teachers with different skills, different approaches, different temperaments. No Christian is the same. Everyone is unique, and that's a glorious thing. But it is God, notice what Paul says, but it is God who is working in them all. But it is the same God which worketh all in all. And the reason why God is working in all is for the glory of God through all. We see this played out in each of the Old and New Testament writers. Each had a particular writing style and each came from a different background, yet they all spoke as God moved them. Different people, one purpose. Different people, one ministration. The glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom. The third point. Paul is then careful to tell the church why the Spirit gives these gifts. Notice. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. But that doesn't mean the individual profiting. It is for the profiting of God's plan, not the profiting of the self. Fourth point, in order to be perfectly clear and instructive, Paul then lists some of the gifts, which include wisdom and knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, speaking other languages, and the interpretation of other languages. Now, wisdom, knowledge, and faith are all given by measure, But to be sure, everyone is given these by degree in order to profit thereby for the kingdom's advancement. Someone who has been given a greater measure of these might be a teacher or a pastor or some other kind of church leader. The common understanding of this passage is that there were some of these gifts that were only functioning for a certain time during the first century, such as healings and miracles, and in a real real way, that's correct. The question is, however, do these gifts, these supernatural gifts, remain even today in a natural way and not so much in a miraculous way? Now, while it's true that some of these supernatural gifts may have been given for a time, I believe today they still have a natural place, and I stress that very importantly, a natural place in the modern era. Let me explain. Rather than understanding Paul's idea of the gift of healing as a supernatural gift, whereby physical sicknesses are healed miraculously, consider this. Consider the gift of healing applied to someone that's a doctor, or a naturopath, or a homeopathic practitioner. Someone who has that sensibility. The gift of healing. Not through a miraculous healing, because those were done to show that Truly, Christ had come. But what about today? Surely that individual is skilled in the discipline of healing. The same application can also be applied to the idea of tongues, or more precisely, languages. The gift of language and their interpretation of those languages are given to those who have a knack for learning languages, like William Tyndale, or John Calvin, or John Wycliffe. I have trouble with English. 
So I'm not going to have the gift of languages or the gift of tongues. These men all had the knowledge of many languages. Tyndale, for example, was proficient in seven different languages. When Paul mentions the working of miracles, you think of miracles, miraculous thing. Well, the Greek actually should be translated as the operation of power and should not be misunderstood as a supernatural gift whereby the natural order of things is overridden as in walking on water, raising of the dead, or causing a rock to spew out water. Now we have to ask the question then, isn't the working of power what the gospel declaration is all about? And don't we then have the gift of the operation of power? Because when we declare the gospel of Christ, is that not the operation of power? According to St. Paul, that's exactly what it is. Paul uses the same word to describe the preaching of the gospel in Romans 1.16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, or it is the operation of the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's a natural aspect to all of these gifts that God gives us. And so all of these gifts are attainable to some degree by the Spirit in our modern era in a natural fashion according to the dispersion and discretion of the Spirit. Now perhaps the next question is, how do I identify what my gifts are? How do I know? How do I know what, I, what I'm skilled in? What is my gift? Well, before I even suggest some possibilities, you first have to ask this question. Do I really want to know what my gift is? Because once I know what my gift is, will I be responsible to the execution of that gift? And if I I find my gift, am I willing to honestly and diligently willing to develop it and then, of course, execute it faithfully and consistently, not with fits and starts? So those are the first questions we ask. Well, most church folks shy away from identifying their gifts because they simply don't want to serve. That's basically the reason. They don't want to get involved. They would rather be served than to serve. They refuse to disrupt their comfortable life of profession and pietism with the reality and actuality of Christian duty. And while their orthodoxy might be in order, their orthopraxy stinks. It's in chaos. But for those who have the hungering and thirsting to get involved in kingdom building, here are some directives. First, pray that God will reveal your gift to you. All begins there. Second, take a personal assessment of who you are and what you are capable of. Everyone is capable of doing something. I'm sorry. Everyone can do something. You could pick up a paper off of the carpet. You could wash out a coffee pot. You can give people an encouragement when they were sick. Send them a letter. Give them a phone call. Send them a text. Put them on signal. Everyone can do something. Even a child is capable of doing some sort of work. As the scripture says, children are known by what they do. You are known by what you do. Isn't it interesting when we meet somebody for the first time, what is the first thing we say? Oh, so what do you do for a living? Because we know what the person is by what they're doing and we know something about them by what they do for a living. Third, Ask others to identify what your gifts are. I'm sure you wouldn't want me to go around to identify your gifts because you may not like what I see or what I ask you to do or what I think you can accomplish. So you ask others. Fourth, parents, you must help your child 
all of your children identify their gifts early on so that they do not have to ask the question, where do I fit in? Do I fit in or am I just here to play and, and, and do this or do that? No, you have to direct your child. Number five, get involved in something ministrative. Serve others in those things that advance the kingdom. Remember, you are the visible church and that visible church is the earthly representation of the kingdom of God and that's where you are to serve. The church is the launching pad of truth to the community. If the church is well served and ministered to, it becomes a formidable force within its realm. You see, too many Christians today think that their gifts are to be used for personal ministry outside the church. But Paul was addressing the church at Corinth so that they would use their gifts within the body of Christ, for the body of Christ, in order to build the body of Christ, in order to build the church, its testimony, its people, and its impact on the community. Now, if the whole body were the eye, then the development of a personal ministry may be sanctioned by Scripture, but that's not the case. The whole body is not just an eye. It's a diverse and comprehensive unit in unity working together, and therefore it must function as a unified organism, or it will not function at all. Number six, fulfill... And I can't stress this enough. Fulfill your biblical destiny. What is your destiny? Do you even know you have a destiny? What is your biblical destiny? What are you leaving? Leave something of eternal value when you exit this life. And that begins with your children, but it doesn't end with your children. What about you? What is your personal contribution to the kingdom? David knew who he was. Not only did he know who he was, he knew whose he was and he knew where he was headed. And he made it his purpose not to let anything or anyone stand in the way of God's will for his life. And so, after his lamentation, he looks to God for his next step. Knowing his destiny as the future king, he asks God if it's time to go to any of the cities of Judah for his anointing. We see this in verse 1. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord. Notice he inquired of the Lord. That's what his pattern was. Inquiring of God, saying, shall I do this? Shall I do that? Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And of course the Lord said, go up. And David then asked, where shall I go up? Where shall I go? You're telling me I should go, but now I want to know where I should go. I want specifics. And he said, go on to Hebron. Now once God gives David the go-ahead, David wastes no time. Once you know your destiny, waste no time in fulfilling it. David wastes no time. He goes right ahead. He wastes no time. He gathers gathers his wives and his army. He travels to Hebron where he's anointed king by his brethren of the house of Judah. We see this in verses 2 and 3 and verse 4. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now even though Samuel anointed David the people he would lead had to accept his leadership by anointing him as their king. So David brings his men and all the people and they anoint him king over the house of Judah. David is then told that the men of Jabesh-Gilead took it upon themselves to bury Saul. This was an act of great honor. And for this act of honor, David blesses the men of Jabesh-Gilead. He makes sure they understand that he was very thankful for their kindness towards Saul. Notice verse 5. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. Adam Clark comments, he says, This was a generous and noble act by David, highly indicative of the grandeur of David's mind. 
He respected Saul as his once legitimate sovereign. He loved Jonathan as his most intimate friend. The former had greatly injured him and sought his destruction, but even this did not cancel his respect for him as the anointed of God and as the king of Israel. Well, as a result of the kindness of the men of Jabesh, Gilead, David blesses them in the name of the Lord. He calls them to courage, notice, and extends to them his right hand of fellowship and leadership. And we read this in verses 6 and 7. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I will also requite you with this kindness, because you have done this thing. Therefore, now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant, for your master's soul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. And this is a very cunning move. He is blessing and encouraging the men of Jabesh, Gilead, in order to attach himself to these men as men of honor and men of valor. Adam Clark once again explains, he says, David certainly wished to attach the men of Jabesh to his interest. He saw that they were generous and valiant and must be of great service to him whose part they espoused. And he was no doubt afraid that they would attach themselves to the house of Saul. Notice how cunning he was. I'm going to show you my kindness. I'm going to pray the Lord grant you valor and strength. I am now the king of Judah. Come to me. His kindness was drawing them. He wasn't saying, listen, I'm the king. Now you better, you better bow. No, he's drawing them in with his kindness. And he was no doubt afraid that they would attach themselves to the house of Saul in consideration of the eminent services Saul had rendered them in rescuing them from Nahash, king of the Amorites. David is keenly aware that there might be a contest between David and the house of Saul for the royal position since Saul's 40-year-old son, Ishbosheth, may be considered to be next for the throne in place of Saul. And so he seeks to befriend the men of Gabesh. This too is a very wonderful tactic that we might employ as we befriend those in our community so they might support the kingdom's work in the future alongside of us whenever we are faced with contention from the enemies of Christ. So we make friends of the unrighteous mammon. We make friends of the enemies. We say, oh, come on over to our side. We, we want you to be strengthened and valiant in the Lord. And this was a very, very interesting tactic that David here brings forth to these men. But there will be contention. Enter the catalyst for the contention between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, Saul's war chief. Now, while David is anointed as king in Hebron by the men of Judah, Abner has Ishbosheth anointed as king over Gilead and the other tribes. Notice verses 8 and 9. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam and made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and all over Israel. Now it seems Abner, very curious character, it seems that Abner is not really interested in Ishbosheth as king. Ishbosheth, as we're going to see, was a very weak, weak man. He actually may have been seeking the kingdom for himself. Abner wanted the kingdom for himself, or at least to place himself in such a position of strength by lying himself with the more powerful king so that he would finally be the king. It's interesting, however, that Abner is going to make a deal with David to transfer Saul's kingdom to him. You see, he really wanted to be king when David had at one time humiliated him before the army of Israel when he failed to protect Saul while he slept. And yet he's going to look to David to help him to become a man of power, a position of power. And what you have here in Abner 
is a very ambitious man who wants to be sure he is on the winning side. Now at this time, the kingdom is split into the northern and southern regions with David over Judah to the south and Ishbosheth over Israel to the north. Note the duration of the two rulers. Verse 10 and 11. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, the language here is a bit confusing until it's understood parenthetically and not chronologically. It, it actually is saying that David and Ishbosheth ruled their particular regions for seven and a half years before the kingdom is taken by David as a result of Abner and Ishbosheth's death. And so after a period of division, we see the north and the south meet together under Abner and Joab in verse 12. And it is at this time when the two factions face off at opposite sides of the pool at Gibeon. And this is where the situation gets out of hand. Abner here suggests that the men of these two tribes, these two, Israel and Judah, face off in a war game to see who would win if there happened to be a real confrontation. We're going to stage a war game. And this was a very, very prideful suggestion. Because what Abner is saying and what he is tempting David's men and Ishbosheth's men is to ask the question, who has the better army? Who's stronger? Who's braver? Who's taller? Who has more muscles? Who's the better army? Who's the most valiant of men? Who can run faster, jump higher? Who is stronger? Who's better looking? Who can debate better? Who knows more scripture? Who can recite more Bible verses? Let's have a, let's have a contest to see who's better. It was only to be a simulated battle. But of course, with all men, pride gets in the way and emotions became uncontrollable. Notice Verse 14, And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. And there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. So you have twelve and twelve. Now for whatever reason, things got violently out of hand. And David's men take opportunity to kill Saul's war game participants. Notice verse 16. And they caught every one of his fellows by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called hel kath Azirim, which is in Gibeon. Now, once Saul's men are killed, an all-out battle ensues. Now, what should be remembered is that all of these men were Israelites. Even though they were from different tribes, they were all brethren, They were all supposedly professors of Yahweh. But now they were, although they were brethren, they were actually now at odds with each other because they wanted to know who could jump higher, who can run faster, who is more valiant, who can debate better, who knew more scripture, who can recite better. Division had come as a result of pride. And violence ensued. And there was a very sore battle that day and Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. While the battle raged, a certain young warrior from David's camp named Asahel 
sets his sights upon Abner for one purpose and one purpose alone, to kill him. He would get the prize. If he could kill Abner, maybe he could be elevated to the position just under Joab as war chief. So he begins to pursue Abner. And seeing that he could not escape, Abner then warns Asael to stop pursuing him. Otherwise, he would have to defend himself and kill Asael, and that's not what he wanted to do. We read this in verse 18 and following. There were the three sons of Zeruiah there, Joab and Abishai and Asael. And Asael obviously had a skill of running very quickly. He was light of foot as a wild roe. And Abner knew because of that testimony that he could not outrun Asael. But Asael in his pride pursued after Abner. And in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left hand from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asael? And he answered, I am, knowing that he could not outrun that man. And Abner said, Turn thee aside to the right hand or to thy left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men and take thee his armor. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. Take his armor. If you're going to follow me, take his armor because we're going to fight. But he would not. He would not turn aside. And Abner said, Turn thee aside from following me. Where should I smite thee to the ground? How then shall I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? He doesn't want to kill him. But prideful Asael refuses to turn aside. So Abner is forced to defend himself. Righteously defending himself. Taking the hinder end of the spear smites Asael under the fifth rib, spear coming out behind him. And that's where he fell down and died. It was at that place when anyone would come to that place, they just stood still remembering the horrible situation that had come to pass. Now Asael was clearly the aggressor. In his hubris, in his lack of wisdom, in his immaturity, and that's what it was all about, Fighting with brethren, it's all about hubris, pride, immaturity, lack of wisdom. Joab's brother Asael seeks to kill Saul's war chief. But instead, God turns the tables on Asael, and Asael is killed by Abner, which sparks out an all-out war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And on that day, many of Saul's army died along with 20 of David's men, all because of pride. We will examine the ramifications of Asael's treachery next when we continue to expound the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.